on display in all of his fullness and his glory so that our lives can be changed from our time that we spend here this morning. So, Father, we thank you that we can come and to open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to Genesis chapter 50. And as you turn to Genesis chapter 50, I just have to begin my, uh, our, our time just by saying if you're expecting to leave with a, a skip in your step and a smile on your face for the second week in a row, I'm sorry to disappoint because we come to Genesis chapter 50 to where uh, it's a funeral, it's a burial. We're coming to celebrate the life of a man who lived. And when you look at scripture, when you uh, look at Jacob's life, we have to when he's being born and we have to him, his body going into the cave. And so we have a full life on display within the pages of scripture. There aren't many that can say that, but um, Jacob is one of them. And so we're coming to a burial this morning. If you remember last September, Queen Elizabeth died at the age of 96. And you may have been one of those people who seen her funeral and then the funeral procession that took place afterwards because millions of people, maybe even billions of people sort of watched an event that took place in Great Britain. We don't see many state funerals here in this country. The only one that came into my mind out, outside of Reagan, but the latest one was probably George Bush 41. Because there, for Queen Elizabeth, heads of states from around the world attended her funeral. Representatives from 186 countries attended, including 18 monarchs, 55 presidents, and 25 prime ministers. And so you can almost say, uh, say the world participated in the queen's funeral. And it's interesting because after the funeral, there was a procession that, left, that um, went from Westminster Ab Abbey to the place in which she was going to be buried that was over a mile and a quarter long. And so it consisted of the carriage which had the queen's body. It was drawn by the Royal Navy sailors. Then after that, it was the members of the royal family, the up-and-coming king, his household. They walked behind the carriage, some of which were, were, were in cars. And so they escorted the queen's body down the road. And then thereafter came the military on horses, and they walked, and then other heads of state. And so it was a great procession that took place along the heavily populated uh, streets in which the um, British people watched. And so it was a great sad moment, but it was a memorable um, event that took place for Great Britain. People remembered because it was over 70 some odd years to where they had their last state funeral like that. And so we come to a similar situation in Genesis chapter 50 to where we get to see Jacob and the procession for him. 
When he died, he was about 147 years old. And so he lived a full life. And in Genesis chapter 50, we have in the first 14 verses a description of what took place. And so let me read the passage for you to set the verses within our minds, and then we're going to be looking at these verses. And so look at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 50 as this story begins to unfold. We find this in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physician embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to, to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself, in the land of Canaan, you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They also went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in a cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. It may seem like that this is a very insignificant passage, but it's interesting. This is a great passage for us that's very applicable. And this morning we're going to look at these 14 verses to sort of focus our thoughts on four areas to hang our thoughts on. For the first area is found in the first three verses. We're going to see Jacob's, I mean, Joseph's reaction to the death of his father. And then in verses 4 through 10, we're going to see the request of Joseph that he makes to Pharaoh. In verses 7 through 11, we're going to see the mourning for Jacob. And then in verses 12 through 14, we're going to see the burial of Jacob. 
And so we come to this section of Genesis as the book of Genesis begins to wind down. And it's interesting because now we have Joseph back in the spotlight as his book begins to come to a close. For the last two chapters, Jacob has been center stage. So from chapter 37 to, until then, Joseph's um, life was on display, and now Jacob is back in the spotlight. In chapter 47, we saw the death of Jacob. We looked at our, uh, our mortality, that we could die at any moment, that we did not have a guarantee for a long life, and that unless the Lord returns, we will all face death squarely in the face. And now in chapter 50, we see the result of Jacob's death by those who are left behind. And so Jacob died, and now there are those who left behind who mourn the death of Jacob. And so this is an, an area to where each one of us are going to have to face at some point in our life the death of a loved one. And so it's very applicable for us in a very important section of God's Word. And so as we, as we begin to unpack this section, let's first of all look at the reaction of Joseph. In verse 1, we find this. Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. And so this goes back to verse 33 of chapter 49, to where Joseph just finished charging his sons that he wanted to be buried in the land. He took his feet up, put them back in the bed, and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And so Jacob has just died, and immediately grief filled Joseph's heart. And so I just want to take a, a few moments to look at Joseph's grief. Because Joseph had grief over the death of his father. And we'll see in these verses that as believers, we're not um, going to be exempt from having sorrows and hardships and similar grief in our own life. Because those trials will be there. And part of those trials will come with the death of loved ones. Grief will fill our own hearts. Being a believer does not mean we won't have those things. We don't have the ability to name it and claim it to get out of those things. Those areas to, um, are going to be areas to where we're going to have to persevere and endure. And there will be times to where we won't have the strength to carry on because the grief may be that heavy. And so our lives are not filled with only smooth sailing. The waters of our lives can get quite choppy, and the waves of the storm can crash over our bow and make us feel like water is filling our boat. And so we face those same hardships as the world faces. And so these areas we don't like to think about. We like things smooth sailing the entire time. But we don't know if a death of someone who's young in our family or someone who's close in our family can happen at any time, for we dread that phone call. You just know it's late at night, the phone rings, and the first thing that comes into to our mind, at least my mind, is, uh-oh, who died? And so those things will come about. The preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1 that there is an appropriate time for everything. 
There is an appropriate time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. There's a time to give birth, and there's a time to die. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. And so everything that we experience in life has an appropriate time, and the aspect of death is part of that. We will experience that. Some of us may experience that more than others, but it will be there. And those elements have been given to us sovereignly by God to be part of, of our walk with Him. And so the last time we've seen death could happen to each one of us at any moment. But for those who are left behind, we grieve when someone dies. And we see this in the life of Joseph. In verse 1 and verse 50, Jacob dies, he falls on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. And here we see the deep sorrow that fills Joseph's heart at the death of his father. It's a deep sorrow. And there are three aspects concerning this sorrow and death I want to sort of have you think about this morning and focus in on. There could be many more, but just three I just want to point out. The first of all, that when death takes place, death brings about the feeling of separation. We grieve because there's a void now that takes place between us and the person who had just passed on. They're gone. In one moment, they were in front of us. In the next moment, they're gone. It leaves a vacuum. It leaves a void. It leaves an emptiness. If you're a young person to, here today, you may not have experienced that yet, but it will come where someone will die, maybe a parent. For others, you know exactly what that feeling feels like because someone close to you has died and you understand that separation. It hurts. You can't do anything about it. They're gone. And so even though Jacob is 147 years old, and at this point, Joseph should have known that his father could have died really at any moment, because when you get up there past 100, you know, you don't have that much time left. Well, God gave him another 47 years, and so um, it still hurts him even though he was that old. The death of his father still brought pain. And so death is a painful experience for those who are left behind to go through. We grieve. We mourn. And so there's, there's a lesson that I just want to underscore today, that grieving over the death of a loved one is okay. It's fine. We should grieve. They're gone. There is a sting that that void leaves because they're no longer around any longer but the focus for the believer though we can grieve is that one day if they're uh, another believer in Christ is that we will one day be in their presence again and the Lord can give comfort for us while we grieve and so whatever that time period for for us can be different for someone else and that's all right. For some, it's a short period of time to where the heaviness, you just don't want to do anything, you're locked up in your home, that can take place short time. But for others, it can be a, an extended period of time. 
that can be okay. The grieving process is different for everyone. And it's interesting for Joseph, this isn't the first time he felt that separation from his father. Back when he was 17 years old, he felt the same similar separation because he was sold into slavery, went down to Egypt, in the back of his mind sort of knew that he would never see his father again, that he would forever be separated uh, from him in this life. But God brought him back into his life. He had 17 years to be with him, to talk to him, to encourage him, to, to communicate with him. But now this is a separation which is similar but is far different. He's dead. And so this separation that death brings is a, and can be a heavy weight for one to bear. We try to persevere and we try to tell others that we're okay, but deep inside it still hurts. We're still grieving. The Lord is there to give comfort, as we shall see. The second thing I want to talk about death is that death in one's life brings about remembrances. When death comes, it seems like the memories just flow back. It's sort of like um, a dam that bursts. It just, it just flies out with, with the memories. And so many of, of those memories are joyful, past holidays, past vacations, past events. Some of those memories are filled with more pain and more sorrow because of what had taken place. And so it just brings back re remembrances. And because, because of those remembrances, it, there's a third element I want you to think about is death brings about regrets. When a death happens in your life, generally there are regrets. You wish you'd done more with them. Maybe you wished you'd call them more. Maybe you wished you'd visit them, them more. I wish I'd just done more. I wish I hadn't said those things, and I never quite fixed those things. And so it's a reminder that we need to make the best time of those things while they are still here. And so we see that when Jacob finally dies, grief fills Joseph's heart. And he mourns his father. And so it is okay for the believer to weep, to grieve, to mourn. Paul even commands us in Romans 12 and verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It happens. It's okay. And so others may sort of tell us, you know, to pull things together, have a stiff upper lip, just keep on plugging away, focusing on life. But we still mourn, and that's fine. Crying is not a sign of, of weakness. And so there, it's fine for us to show emotion at times. Even our Lord wept. And on three different occasions... Our Lord cried, one of which was hearing the death of Lazarus. In, in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus has said that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He understood grief. And so as with Joseph, one day you will have sorrows and grieve over a loved one. Those days will come. 
And on this day, Joseph and his brother find themselves grieving over their, their father, and now it's time to bury him. And so he passed, and now it's time to put him in the ground. But yet there's a second element I, I want you to see here in verse 1, and, and that is Joseph's affections. We see the affection that he has for his father because he, Jacob dies, he falls on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. He is just overwhelmed with emotion. It just floods out of him, the love that he has for his father. And so when you have a parent who passes, you can begin to understand that because there is something special about the people who brought you into this world. There's a connection between a parent and a child. And when death comes, that relationship is severed. And he feels separated between him and his father. Though he knows that one day he will see his father again, he still mourns. And so there will be a time in your life, if your parents have not passed, that you will experience that. If your parents have passed, I'm sure you, you would be one to where you could express your feelings once again to them so that they can hear it. And so uh, Joseph is honoring his father by weeping over him, and it shows his great affection for him. That's exactly what the fifth commandment talks about. We're told to honor our father and our mother. And so when we honor our parents, it brings glory to God. And so it doesn't matter what has transpired in the, in the past. For God's people, they're to honor their parents. And that is what he's, Joseph is doing and, and will do as these verses unfold. And so when we honor our parents, it is a testimony in which it will stand out to those around when we honor them. And so Joseph moves from initial sorrow, and then in verse 2, he begins to take charge for the burial. And so in verse 2, we find, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. Now, Joseph was not the oldest brother, but I think why Joseph takes command here is because he had the ability to get things done in a foreign land. And so he probably had plans on what would take place in his mind and what steps that needed to be done for the burial of his father. And so this gives us also a, a footnote. It's very helpful for the family to have similar plans done laid out ahead, ahead of time. For if something were to happen to you, it makes life a lot easier for those who are left behind. Because if, if, if there are no plans, it's hard. The family members are walking through a dark valley and now to plans, well, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Where are we going to meet? What songs are we going to sing? How's the service going to be? Who's going to conduct the service? That's, that's hard. And so Joseph knew what was going to be taking place and he takes charge of those things. And so having those decisions help greatly helps the family during an ex extremely difficult time. But it's interesting here, as verse 2 begins to unfold, we find out that Joseph was going to have his father embalmed. Embalming was not something the Hebrews normally did. And we're not given the facts if, J if Jacob already knew that he was going to get embalmed. But I'm sure that Joseph would have run it by his father to make sure that nothing would displease him. 
and getting his body back to Canaan. Now, embalming was a common practice in, in Egypt where they would embalm the, their dead. It was a part of their religious, cultic practice in which they, um, they performed. Because they believed that the body needed to be embalmed so it would help prepare the soul to move on into the afterlife. And so the body needed to be properly prepared. And the best that you, um, that you could perform it, the more success they would have in the afterlife. Now, usually this embalming were, was done by the temple priests. They would perform the embalming process while their religious things were going on while, while they celebrated those elements. But here we, we see that Joseph is not embracing their pagan religion by having his father embalmed because he has uh, Jacob's body embalmed, we find, by the physicians. It's not the priest. He wanted to have their father prepared in a way that would not dishonor God, but it would preserve the body so it could go back to the Holy Land. And so why embalm? Well, Joseph needed to be sure that the body would be in the proper state to go back into the land. Because if you just put a body in a box, and after the period of mourning takes place, and after the trip was going to be done, it would be a smelly, stinky mess. And so the Hebrew people practiced that when a person died, that they would bury the body the same day. You didn't want to be defiled in, in, in any way by touching a dead body. And so this would prepare the body for the, for the long trip back, back to, the, back to the Holy Land. And so he had his, his father's body embalmed. Now, the embalming process was done in a number of different ways. It all depends on how much money you have. The most inexpensive way to embalm a body was to wash it and just leave it out into the sun, and it would naturally dry out. And so that's the cheap way on how to do it. If you had a little more money, you would pack the body in salt, which would naturally dry out the body, and it would naturally preserve it. If you had a little more money, you would inject the body with juniper oil with salt, and it would dry out the body all the more better. But if you were one of the wealthy people, you would have the body in, in the most elaborate way embalmed. Turns out to be just like the movie. You know, they would remove the organs, put them in separate jars, inject bodily fluids into the body, get the body to drive out, wrap it in linen wrappings, and it would be the process of mummifying the body the best way. And so this process believed to give the person the most success to crossing over to the other side leading into the afterlife. And if you think of King Tut, that, that's, how, that's how he was found in that way. And so, Joseph had his father's body embalmed, probably in the last, uh, the last way, because of how long it took the process to take place, as we shall see. So, for the end part of verse 2, we see the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, for 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And so we see the physicians perform the most elaborate embalming because of the time that is taking place. 
And we also see that we, we see Jacob's name is not being used, but his covenant name. He was a representation for God's people, the physicians bombed Israel. It was in, in honor of Joseph's father to use his covenant name. And so the entire process, we're told, it took 40 days. And so we know from history that when a pharaoh died, there was a national time of mourning of 72 days. And so we find here from, uh, from the verses that, is, that are unfolding, the entire mourning process was 70 days. And so 40 days to embalm, and then there was a 30-day period of national mourning. And even for the length of time, they treated Jacob like he was a national leader. Because of what Joseph had, had done for, for the nation and for their respect in, uh, that they had for Joseph, they treated Joseph's father in a way that would be just like a national leader. And so the entire nation went into a state of mourning over a man they never met. And so this is part of, I believe, the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, in which God fulfills the promise in which I will make you a great nation. And this is a glimpse of that. It's a respect given to the people of Abraham that God will make Abraham great, he will make Isaac great, and he will make Jacob great, and it's shown here by how he is being treated in his burial. Though the Hebrews were not a great nation here because they probably numbered just over 100, but 400 years later, there'd be over 2 million people getting ready to leave Egypt. And so this national mourning that is taking place over the next couple, couple of weeks gives honor to God's people as a sign that God would be actively involved fulfilling the promises that he has by using the name is Israel, but also in how they treated the body of Joseph. And so it was a way to honor Joseph by honoring Joseph's father. And so 70 days we find in which the mourning took place, 40 of which, which was embalming, and then 30 of which came from just mourning that, that took place for a period of 70 days. And so we see his body being prepared. And so I just want to pause for, for a moment because we looked at the aspect of death last time, but I just want to sort of remind you of it and also expand on it that there are six truths about life after death that we need to be reminded of. The first one about death is that at death, the soul immediately departs from the body. We don't have time to, um, to look at the verses, but um, the soul at death leaves the body. So whether or not you're a believer or, or unbeliever, your soul leaves the body. Secondly, the soul of the believer immediately goes into the presence of God. And so when a believer dies, we're going to be fully conscious immediately in God's presence. And so there is no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. You can't find those aspects in the Bible. But we are told that we're in God's presence. Third, the soul of an unbeliever immediately goes to the lake of fire fully conscious. 
It won't be the second death right now, but they are going to be beginning to get judged immediately when they die. Fourthly, the body stays in the ground until the Lord returns. And so when one dies, the body goes into the ground, but the soul and spirit are not there. But one day they will be reunited together. And for the believer, that will be when the Lord returns. Fifthly, the body for believers will be raised for, the, for a resurrection of life. And so for the believer, we're going to get a brand new body, one that doesn't break down, one that doesn't crack, one that doesn't need any, any preparation. We're never going to be sick, we're never going to be tired, we're never going to grow hungry. It's going to be an eternal, perfect body just like what Christ's body is. It's going to be eternal and glorified, just like what Christ is. And so that awaits the believer. For, for the unbeliever, they're going to get an, an eternal body, sixthly, that will be raised for eternal judgment. And so they will get a new body, but one that will not perish, but one that will ultimately be in the lake of fire and never consumed. And so those are aspects of that death we need to be reminded of. But I want you to look at verse 4 for, uh, for a moment. We find the request that Joseph makes. Joseph does not assume anything. Though he is prime minister of Egypt, he doesn't assume his position. And he makes a request to Pharaoh. Look at verse 4. It says, When the days of mourning for him were past." Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying. And so Joseph needs to make a request, but you find here he doesn't immediately go directly to Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh's counselors, people in his household, people were, who were around Pharaoh. Now, though we're not told the why here, why he doesn't go to Pharaoh directly, but most commentators think that it's more along the line of that if Pharaoh thought it was not a good idea for him to go, that things would get quite awkward for Pharaoh, for himself. And no, you can't go, you're, you're more needed to be here. And so to save Pharaoh from that awkwardness, he, he tells the people who are around Pharaoh to make the request for him. And so that makes most logical sense to me. And so that's what he does. He has them bring a special re request. And, and in the uh, second part of verse 4, we find this request being made. We find, now, if I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I'm about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And so he tells the people around Pharaoh to bring this request. And the request is, my father made me make a vow to have his body buried there. Please let me go. And it's interesting because he uses the magic word twice. He uses the word please twice in his request. 
Joseph doesn't presume anything with his discussion with, um, with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is his boss, essentially, the ultimate boss. There is no one. Pharaoh held the matter of life and death in his hands. And so you have to go with full respect before Pharaoh. And so he uses the word please in his request. Please speak to Pharaoh. Please let me go. And so this underscores the principle for us that whoever is over us, whether it's the workplace, whether it's in society, whether it's the government, there are always those people who have authority over us and we need to show them a level of respect in how we communicate to them. We saw this in Sunday school a couple weeks back in the life of David. In 1 Samuel, David has had the ability to kill King Saul twice, but he chose not to. Even though he was king-elect, that God has turned his back on Saul, he viewed that King Saul was still God's anointed, and he could not kill God's anointed. It was God was the one to take him out of power, not him. And so David still had respect for the position of King Saul. And so here we have a similar situation. Joseph makes his request humbly to Pharaoh. He asks for permission to leave the country, to travel north, and to bury his father. And so those who are, who are over us, we need to have the same kind of respect. Because if you think about with your boss, those who are over you, they probably hear complaints and gripes all the time. That's just what they do with being a boss. But for those who are, um, who are under them, it really stands out for those who go before them with, a res uh, with respect to ask for requests. Because the world doesn't do that. And so when someone has that respect, it will stand out. If you're disrespectful, you're just like everyone else. And so there is a way an employee should act towards their employer. There's a way a wife should be towards her husband. There is a way a child should be towards their parents. There is a way a church member should approach the elders. There's a way that we as citizens should approach civil officials with a level of respect. And so Joseph requests permission to leave the country. To leave not just Egypt, but go to a certain land. And we, and we see that mentioned in our verse. Once again, we see the importance of the land to God's people. And we looked at that last time. It sort of goes back to the covenant that Jacob just didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted to be buried in the land of promise. In the same place where his father was buried, and his grandfather was buried. goes back to Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham he was going to promise them to give them a land, to give them a seed, a descendant, and a blessing, that they would be a great nation, that he will give them a place to dwell. And out of all the descendants, there will be a promised one who will bring about redemption, who will be the king of kings, and he will reign forever. And so it was a sign for Jacob, for the nation now, and for the future generations, 
to see that he wanted to be with God's people. Because really, it doesn't matter where we're buried, but there was, for him, an extra step. God spoke to Jacob, and he wanted to be um, a, a sign that God will fulfill the promises because God has told him to. And so the land was a big deal to God, which was a big deal to Jacob. And so even to this day, that tiny piece of land in the Middle East is still important to God. World events seem to always center around Israel. That land that God promised to Abraham was the same place where God's son was sent. That land was, was where our Lord ministered. That land was where, where he was hung on the cross to die. And that land was, was, was going to be the place where he will return again. And so it's not going to be Moscow and it's not going to be Johannesburg. It's not going to be New York. It's going to be in Israel. And so the land is important with God. And so he needs to bring his father, and Joseph makes that request. And in verse 6, we find Pharaoh's response to Joseph's question. It's a quick response because of who Joseph was and the faithfulness that he had to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, go up. Bury your father as he made you swear. And so Pharaoh grants permission. And so as, as verses 7 and following are, are going to be unfolding, this was no easy task. Essentially, Pharaoh's going to be flipping the bill, but as, as we shall see. But it was no easy task. Because in verses 7 through 11, we're going to see this procession. And it's not just Joseph's family. It's like the nation is going along with them, the prominent ones in the nation. And this procession was going to be impressive, a lot more impressive than what the queen's procession was. And so let's see the mourning of Jacob in verses 7 through 11. And so in verse 7 we find, Joseph went up to bury his father, and he went up with all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There they went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And so as these uh, verses sort of unfold, it was no small trip. First of all, with this trip, to the land of Canaan, the trip would have taken probably over a week to arrive in Canaan. And so if it takes a long time to, to sort of travel up there, you would have to have enough food. You would need a, a change of clothes. You would need a place of a tents to stay in. And then enough food and clothes for the return trip home. That's a lot of stuff. People go away for a weekend. And their suitcase is full of stuff. This is going to be longer than, than a week. Secondly, notice the number of people in this procession. We have more than just Jacob's family because they leave, everybody goes except the little ones and their livestock. And so the trip would have been a difficult trip. But they leave the livestock and the little ones to be a sign to Pharaoh that they're going to return to the land, that they wouldn't stay. 
But this procession that takes place, Joseph is going to be with the body in the front. And look at the breakdowns of categories we have here. We have the servants of Pharaoh. Those were the attendants and counselors of Pharaoh. We have the elders of his household. So those are um, the different prominent leaders. We have the elders of Egypt. Those were other prominent leaders. We have Joseph's families next in line. Uh, Joseph's brothers and their family. Um, Joseph's father's household. That's all of Jacob's household. And then you have the military escort, the chariots and the horsemen, that they are there. This is Egypt, the world power. There was a look about it of wealth and prominence. And the attire was going to be different. And so when the inhabitants of the land seen this, it must have been a sight for, for sore eyes. It was a procession of national importance. And once again, it shows respect that they had for Joseph for honoring Joseph's father in the same way that they, they would have treated Joseph if he passed on. And not just that, but we're not told you needed wagons for supplies and things. It, 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 it was a procession. And so they all were leaving Egypt to go into the land. And look at the end of verse 9. We, we find this. And it was a very great company. And so it just wasn't a large number of people that were a part of the company, and it just wasn't a, a, a larger great company, but it was a very great company. It was a triple emphasis being here. So it's huge. And it was started in one place, and it continued until everyone was there. So there was an excessively large number of people bringing Jacob's body to the land. But I want you to notice in verse 10, thirdly, the route taken during, uh, during this. Look at what verse 10 says. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. Stop right there. If you were to take out the, your map in the back of your Bible, you would find the land of Goshen, and the route in which they would go would be not straight north, but they would go the, the exact same route in which the people of the Exodus were going to go. They, they went along south of the, Red, of the Dead Sea, and then they went north, and then they had to cross the River Jordan. So they're on the eastern side, and then everyone had to cross the River Jordan to enter into the land. Commentators sort of say that this was just uh, Jacob's exodus in which he mapped the way out for the people 400 years to follow. So God delivers them, and he also gives them, if you would, directions on where to go later on. And so, and so when, they, when they get there, they go to a threshing floor at the beginning of verse 10. They arrive at the threshing floor in the land beyond the Jordan. So they're on the western side of the Jordan. Now you may not know what a threshing floor is, but to harvest wheat, you had to separate the grain from the chaff that was on it. And so you would crush the wheat, and then you would go to the place where it's windy, throw the wheat up, 
the chaff would, would then blow away, and then the grain would fall to the ground. And so it had to be a place high up where the wind always blew. Down in the valley, the wind doesn't always blow, and so they were on the top of a high hill, and that's where everyone made camp. And so the inhabitants of the land saw this great number of people with military men parked at top of a hill, and they probably began to wonder what was going on. Look at the next part of verse 10. Because something was different with this great exceedingly number of company. There they lamented with a great, very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Adad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, they named it Abel Mizarim, which is beyond the Jordan. And so the inhabitants of the land saw this people, and they viewed that they were not a threat because they were mourning. They were crying. They were sad of what was taking place. And it happened over a seven-day period. So much so that it stood out. They renamed the land. I lost it in my notes. Um, Abel Mizarim, or the morning of Egypt. And so look how this morning was once again. It was very great. It was sorrowful lamentation, and then it goes on to use the word grievous, meaning massive or heavy. There was a lot of mourning that was being done by the people in the procession. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral before, you may have noticed that there are different degrees in which a person can mourn. It can go from simple sadness to great wailing, where people are just wailing. They're just vocal, and they're crying out with great cries. And this is what was taking place here. There were great cries coming from the Egyptians. And it's interesting because if you've ever been to a number of different funerals, you would quickly note that there is a difference between a funeral of a believer and a, fun a funeral of an unbeliever. Both have a different tone. Both have a different feel. For the unbeliever, you never know what kind of sadness you're going to get. Because some of, some of the funerals, the, the wailing could be great. If it's a death of a youth, grieving could be, could be really bad. Or if it was a tragic situation, grieving, grieving could be bad because everyone is, is in a state of shock. And so the tone and feel of the ceremony is very different for an unbeliever. People could be so overwhelmed at, um, at a funeral that some have even climbed into the coffin with, with the dead body. They're so upset. And so here we have a similar situation with the Egyptians. They're just mourning greatly because that's how they mourn. They had no hope in the afterlife. They knew they thought what they believed, but they had no guarantees. They had no peace. They had no rest in it. And so they mourned greatly because they saw death as a sinister foe. 
And so they were lamenting. And so for the Egyptians, the best that they could do is to preserve the body the best way that they could to have the best life in the afterlife. That's all they could do, but that didn't bring hope. That didn't bring comfort because there was no guarantees with that. So the sting of death was great for those who were left. But for the believer, if you go to a funeral of a believer, there's a different tone. There's sadness, yes. There are cries, yes. There, there can be maybe some wailing. But you go there, they're reading verses. They're even singing. How do you sing at a funeral? You do. There's words of comfort and hope and assurance that are given that one can have hope in the afterlife. There's a completely different feel about it. Though the separation hurts from the one who has passed on, we can still have hope that for the believer we will see them again. And so there's a different feel. And this wailing was taking place. Though Joseph and his family were sad, they knew they were going to see their father again. But for the Egyptians, it was heavy. It was wailing. It was a sign to where they were upset because death had taken place. And so we have our confidence in Christ. And at a believer's funeral, the gospel is shared to give others that same hope, that, that same confidence, because it shows why Christ died for us upon the cross. For the unbelieving world, they should see at the death of a believer that those people, those Christians, are different. They're different in how they live. They're different in what they say. And even in the way that they mourn is different. And so the Canaanites were so moved by their lamenting for seven days, they renamed that site the Mourning of Egypt. And so the Canaanites realized that this was some kind of great man because they kept going on and on for seven days of mourning. But yet in verses 12 through 14, with a few moments that we have left, I want to look at the burial of Jacob. They finally put Jacob into the cave with his forefathers. Verse 12, thus the sons of Israel did for him as he charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Mechpelah before Amri, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim, the Hittite. So here we see Jacob's sons still being obedient to the wishes of their father. They're still honoring their father by fully carrying out his request. They're all there. They're all partaking. And so though it really doesn't matter where one gets to be married, it was Jacob's desire. I want to be back at the land. The land's important, and they carried it out. Because it far would have been easier just to say, it doesn't matter, just, just, just bury him in, in, in Egypt. But that's not what it is. They're honoring him, respecting him. And so once again, it's a reminder for us that we need to be honoring our father and their mother. And once again, if your father or mother is still alive, you may need to call them today. Honor them doesn't matter what they have done in the past to hurt you. 
No one's perfect. But God says, honor them. Give them respect. Then your walk with Christ can begin to mean something, to show them the honor and respect that they may even be surprised about. And so call them, because they may not be around for a while. And so we see that in verse 14, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So the entire family returns. Though God promised them the land, they all go back. They all go back because it wasn't God's timing for them to return into the land. Because he told them that they would go back as a great nation. And though it will be another 400 years, they go back into the land. And so we're not told what the exact ceremony was like, but I'm sure there was a ceremony. You just don't lament for when they put the body into the ground. I'm sure there was some kind of ceremony attached to it. May have been like a graveside service that we attend. There's the casket. There's the hole in the ground. And words are said. Our, our mortality is on display there. And it's interesting because for us, when we go to a cemetery, we may just equate the cemetery as that's a place where dead people go. And it's true. Dead people do go there. But it's also a sign for us that our, mortal, our mortal, mortality is not guaranteed. A day of our death will come. I remember when my oldest one was, was little, I always had a joke whenever we drove by a cemetery. I said, look over there. And she would look. I said, they're all dying to get in there. My, my trouble is I said that every, every single time. So it would be like, look over there. They're all dying to get in there. Look over there. And it... It got to a place where all I had to say was, look over there, and she said, please, don't say it. <laughs> but they are. They're all dying to get in there. And so it is true. People are dying to get in there. And so we're standing by Jacob's graveside, being reminded that it was Almighty God who has our lives in his hand. And Joseph would have told them probably exactly what he said in the previous chapter, in chapter 48. That the one that we are mourning had a God. He was the almighty sovereign God. That he was his shepherd who guided him, protected him, provided for him. Not just that he was his shepherd, but he was my shepherd. There was a personalness about it. He would be the one who would redeem him, who would fulfill the promises that he made to him on how he believed in him and it was counted to him as righteousness as his grandfather had been. And so those probably would have been the words, though we're not given those words here, that Joseph would have shared at the graveside for all the Egyptians to hear because they would have been words of hope and comfort given to those who had no hope and no comfort. And so one more passage before we close. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for a moment. There's not a slide because I added it in the last minute, sorry. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Paul addresses this aspect of death. 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. It's about death. About those who are asleep. Resulting in you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The unbelievers have no hope. We don't want you to grieve. We want you to be fully informed. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then in verse 18, and here's the comfort to those who are left these words. We wreck them, will resurrect us with, with our dead bodies, and we will be with him and caught up with him in the area, the air. Those are words of comfort. There is an afterlife, but where are we going to be? And so that is why we come to the table here this morning. We come to the table to celebrate a death, a vicious, brutal death, because our Lord died upon the cross for our sins. Because there on the cross, he made atonement. Pardon was purchased for us. Forgiveness was secured for all those who would receive Christ as a free gift. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so that salvation was accomplished. And it just needs to apply to you. So if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you need to. Because there is no guarantee how long you will live. But when you see your helplessness, you see that all of your works that you have done got you nowhere, and that God who has to judge you for your sins, that brings no hope. But you can have hope. You can have comfort. Because Jesus died in your place. And that's the picture that we celebrate when we partake at the table. His broken body and his shed blood. So we're going to have the men come forward at this time while we partake at the table. And this is a time for believers. So if you don't know Christ, please let these elements pass. And if you are a believer but has immense sin, you need to get that right first before you partake. So let's pray as we come to prepare our hearts. Father, though when we look at the concept of death, it's a hard topic to really grapple with. And I, as, as I was thinking about things throughout the, whole, the entire week, it was a hard message to pull together because it's not a happy thought. But yet at the same time, for the believer, it gives us great hope and great comfort for we know that those dark days will be in front of us in which one of our loved ones may pass on. And then we will feel 
separation and death. But Father, with the life that we have left, we can live for you, that we can bring your name glory. We can share the gospel with those who don't know you. And you give us the opportunity to live different from the world, to have, to have the ability to have those seeds of the gospel planted. And maybe, Father, maybe some will take, grow, take root and grow, and we can have a harvest from that. And so thank you for the Father, Father, that we could come and to partake with your broken body and in your shed blood as a symbol of what you had done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.